Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back, listeners, to the Mad Scientist Podcast, and happy Valentine's Day. It has been a pretty insane past couple of weeks, huh? The president has pretty much completely screwed up science and the future of science in the United States already. What with the freezing of the EPA, which is the source for a huge amount of green energy and fundamental science funding, as well as beginning the process of scaring away the immigrant students who come here to get their PhDs and hope to stay in the United States. Things in many ways have never been worse for science, and for that reason, I really hope that if you are listening to this, and you are a scientist or an engineer or someone who believes that scientific and technological advancement is the best course to continue to be a leader in world affairs for the United States, then I hope you are seriously considering attending the upcoming March for Science, either in Washington, D.C., or around the world, or in your local city. I know many of you aren't listening to this for political views, and I understand that, of course, But these actions of the president are having real and likely lasting effects on science and technology in the U.S. and how scientists and engineers from other countries view coming to the United States for work and advancement. Before we get into the cool stuff this week, we do have some housekeeping. First and foremost, I got my first Patreon supporter. Robert, whoever you are and wherever you are, thank you so much for the support. We also have stickers featuring the podcast logo. This first round of stickers will go out to those who join up on Patreon and pledge $1 a month, along with a hand-drawn doodle by yours truly and a letter of thanks. At the same time, you will receive access to monthly chats with me and others working on this show, as well as first access to upcoming rewards and the opportunity to help direct future episode topics. Other big news is that this podcast has a second member, Marie Mayhew, a fellow ARC member and good friend of the show. She's already been featured on the um, roundtable episodes, but she will be providing help with research as well as joining me for a new series of episodes that will come out every other week, bringing the total of episodes to four a month, I hope. Marie and I will be basically doing a roundtable, as we've already shown, discussing scientific and paranormal things that aren't long enough for their own episodes at this point, and taking a less serious approach than on this show. All right, last time we talked about how science actually gets done, and some of the cases where science has been an imperfect process. This week, we're going to start looking at how pseudoscientific, and particularly pseudo-medical views, come to the forefront, how they spread, or how they're different from science proper. I think one of the biggest red flags for what is or isn't real science is the lack of scientific rigor, and what I mean by that is not following the scientific method, that thing we all learned about in like fourth grade, but which we assumed wasn't really a part of science in the real world. We've discussed the scientific method in previous episodes, but let's just go through the basic steps again. The scientific method breaks up studies and investigations into a number of basic parts. First, you have to think of a question you want to find the answer to. You then would propose a hypothesis, your idea of what the answer to that question might be. You then figure out a method or number of tests with which to determine if that hypothesis is correct. You determine what materials and techniques you'll need, and you try and suss out what the variables or controls for those experiments will be. Variables are things that you will change to observe their effect on your system while controls are things that you will keep the same between tests. This allows you to separate out individual variables, hopefully, 
in order to see exactly what effect they have on a test's particular outcome. And finally, you will actually observe your experiments and collect the data, at which time you will come up with a conclusion on whether or not your hypothesis was correct based on that data. Interestingly, if you apply this sort of logic to pseudoscience claims, you can often find exactly where they fall apart, or rather where it is that they are not scientifically rigorous. At the same time last episode, we discussed how science is then reviewed by others, through peer review in journals, through testing of results to replicate them, or through discussion of methods and tests at conferences. This is another big way that these pseudoscientific claims just absolutely fall apart. There are often no standards for things like health supplement testing, for youth serums sold on TV shopping networks, or for the claims made by TV doctors and, you know, not really that sort of doctors, but still use that title in front of their name, people. In this episode, we will look at the evolution of sort of, kind of medical claims in the modern age, where they may come from at their roots, and how or why it is that we can claim they aren't really science. And how the hell do we combat these sorts of issues in the first place? Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. Tonight's episode, TV Doctors and Magical Berries. Pseudoscience is prevalent in the modern world as my previous episodes and a cursory look at the History Channel or Animal Planet should prove. But it's sort of been prevalent throughout history, or at least views that we would consider to be non-scientific or outside of what we consider the natural world to really look like have been pretty commonplace. Part of this is because for the vast majority of human history, science as we know it today didn't really exist. People observed the natural world, of course, and came up with ideas or concepts that we still use to this point in time in our science. But the idea of there existing a real natural world, one which exists outside of personal experience, with objective and rigid rules about what could and could not occur, is a pretty recent idea. In many ways, this conforms to the philosophical idea of materialism, the belief that everything in the natural world must conform to the rules and observations obtained in the physical sciences. But not everyone takes this to be absolutely true, and in some ways it's in this sort of uncomfortable space between absolute materialism and the subjective experiences of people living in the world that pseudoscience thrives. Now, obviously, there are subjective experiences that we cannot quite explain currently with science, no matter how hard some of us may want to. But what about those cases where subjective reality or how people feel about things shouldn't really matter? I mean, there is a truth to whether or not vaccines cause autism, right? There are ways to reliably test if eating ginkgo biloba will help improve your memory, And there are ways to attempt to prove that a new disease causing threads to form in your skin is actually occurring. I think in many ways, there are commonalities to all of these beliefs that go against what are ultimately testable and material questions. Just from a cursory standpoint, there are a number of usual and reliable pseudoscientific views that crop up in different flavors every couple of years, but which ultimately are of the same kind. This episode, we will look at the first of these in a series of upcoming episodes. First, we have cases where a superfood is discovered, usually from the mountains of some South American or Asian country, that can do all sorts of magical things if you eat them. Second, and in fact, I'm going to get to this in a later episode, so the next episode, is the question of lie detector tests, one of those favorites of daytime TV shows that I think has a longer history if we include all methods of attempting to determine the ultimate guilt or innocence of a certain party. The first of the ideas falls into the category of panaceas, 
Singularly wholesome or perfect foods are items that upon ingestion can cure a whole host of problems, from removal of toxins, curing of spiritual ills, curing cancer, or making you less likely to take on fat. This clearly has a lot to do with folk cures and herbal remedies, right? But also quite a bit borrowed from the ideas of alchemy. These ideas in many ways point to our desire to go back against modern medicine. To a time in a world that was more pure or perfect for its lack of technological advancement and knowledge. It's a perfect example of a very common fallacy, and one that we've talked about on the show before, known as the naturalist fallacy. Basically, this states that because something is natural or it appears to happen in the natural world, it must be good or it ought to happen. Basically placing a normative moral claim on an observation of the natural world. A whole lot of cult or non-standard religious views fall into this fallacy all the time, right? I mean, the Amish, Mennonites, loads of sort of commune-style cults, or anarchist thinking believes that, well... Since we didn't have thing A back when we were just starting out as human beings, then it must be causing us to have all the new problems we observe in the modern world. And for a lot of things, this argument might seem to hold merit, right? I mean, we weren't stressed out about Facebook or Instagram back in the Renaissance, but we also, of course, didn't have the knowledge to cure ourselves of basically any medical ailment. Another sort of inverted idea of this is the opposite, that technology will cure every problem we have the favorite view of UFO or space cults. So this idea that a certain natural thing or fruit or vegetable or root or herb or whatever has some sort of magical way to cure us fits right into this age-old idea that the cure for all of our modern problems can be solved by going back to a more natural or basic world. And of course, I don't mean basic as in like wearing Uggs and drinking Starbucks. This argument also has blushes of the argument that the ancients must have had some knowledge that we don't know of. That sort of ancient alien-style thinking that because maybe you can't imagine the Sphinx being built with wooden boards and copper tools, then it must not have been possible without advanced technology. And even though we like to think that this thinking isn't all that common, you just need to look at modern politics or your personal religious experience to find examples of it. I mean, the whole idea behind many religions is that these people who existed thousands of years ago had special knowledge or teachings that we should still heed today. At the same time, the reliance or absolute reading of the Constitution of the United States has versions of this thinking in it as well. Although we don't deify the American Founding Fathers really, we do assume that the system they created for their given time period and way of life should and absolutely will fit into our modern way of life today at least on certain issues. So we've already talked about my mother's absolute love of persimmons and her belief that her persimmon in particular magically healed itself up. But did you know that persimmons are one of a host of magical fruits and vegetables thought to be a superfood or item that can magically cure a wide variety of ills? I found a particularly interesting use of persimmons on the tumbler of the witch, the self uh, labeled which, Bree Landwalker, who I hope isn't going to be upset that I am quoting from her page here. And I hope I'm not offending her by calling her a witch. Um, I'm not sure what the correct terminology here. So, um, Ms. Landwalker, if I have offended you, I am fully sorry. And please email into the show. This info is from the Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs, second edition by Scott Cunningham, Llewellyn, 1984. Anyways, it is said that persimmons could be used for healing, luck, and water magic. 
but in particular was thought of by practitioners of folk magic in Alabama to be able to change the sex of a particular person. So it goes that if a girl wanted to become a boy, all she had to do was eat nine unripe persimmons. Now, persimmons are healthy. I don't want to act like they aren't. And they are my favorite fruit, probably. They're a good source of fiber, vitamin C, A. They're good for antioxidants and flavonoids, compounds that are thought to be healthy generally by medical science, but which there is frankly not a lot of evidence for in terms of their efficacy to treat specific diseases or chronic conditions. There are also a huge variety of compounds that fit into these two broad categories, some of which are considered to be required for healthy nutrition, but others which are not thought to have any health benefits at all. Antioxidants are a particularly interesting version of this sort of magical or panacea-style healing with a single type of food. So one question that I always have when reading these things about like persimmons or other fruits is, well, what the hell is an antioxidant? So an oxidant is a compound that oxidizes something chemically, which means that it becomes oxidized or takes in an electron. At the same time, an antioxidant is a compound that instead donates an electron. Donating and taking in electrons is how molecules react and interact with one another. But in the body, it is thought to be especially important because of the ability of antioxidants to stop the spread of free radicals. Now, a free radical is a compound that is extremely reactive, specifically taking in even strongly held electrons from other compounds. And this is because a free radical has an unpaired electron in its outer orbital shell. So remember... That outer orbital is where bonding occurs between molecules. And if it's an unpaired electron, it means that it really wants to get another electron inside of its pair. So free radicals are formed in the body naturally, um, but they also can be caused by ingesting chemicals or taking in sunlight. And so they're formed from cellular digestion, basically. Free radicals basically move from their source and will interact with some other molecule. So, for instance, a strand of DNA or a cell membrane. This disrupts these biomolecules and causes them in some cases to become decayed, to lose function, or to even change function. So this is stuff we do want to limit occurring in the body, and scientists believe that antioxidants could be the cure to this issue. I don't want to make these radical systems sound simple, though. Radical release in the skin will be completely different than radical release inside of a cell or release outside of a cell. This means that radicals can have different effects and different outcomes, depending on their source. So, for instance, radicals released in the skin may cause sunburn or skin cancer over time, while radicals that interact with LDL cholesterol may make it more likely to get trapped in an arterial wall. The problem is that antioxidants haven't really been proven to fix many of the problems that free radical release in the body can cause. I think the following quote from the Harvard School of Public Health article called Antioxidants Beyond the Hype gives a really good background on these cases. Quote, Antioxidants came to public attention in the 1990s, when scientists began to understand that free radical damage was involved in the early stages of artery-clogging atherosclerosis and may contribute to cancer, vision loss, and a host of other chronic conditions. Some studies showed that people with low intakes of antioxidant-rich fruits and vegetables were at greater risk for developing these chronic conditions than were people who ate plenty of these fruits and vegetables. Clinical trials began testing the impact of single substances, especially beta-carotene and vitamin E, as weapons against heart disease, cancer, and the like. Even before the results of these trials were in, 
the media and the supplement and food industries began to hype the benefits of antioxidants. Frozen berries, green tea, and other foods labeled as being rich in antioxidants began popping up in stores. Supplement makers touted the disease-fighting properties of all sorts of antioxidants. The trials were mixed, but most have not found the hoped-for benefits. Most research teams reported that vitamin E and other antioxidant supplements didn't protect against heart disease or cancer. One study even showed that taking beta-carotene may actually increase the chances of developing lung cancer in smokers. On the other hand, some trials reported benefits. For example, after 18 years of follow-up, the Physician's Health Study found that taking beta-carotene was associated with a modest reduction in the rate of cognitive decline. The mostly disappointing results haven't stopped food companies and supplement sellers from banking on antioxidants. Indeed, antioxidant supplements represent a $500 million industry that continues to grow. Antioxidants are still added to breakfast cereals, sports bars, energy drinks, and other processed foods, and they are promoted as additives that can prevent heart disease, cancer, cataracts, memory loss, and a host of other conditions. End quote. Clearly, antioxidants are big business, so it isn't likely that they are going anywhere anytime soon. But it isn't all bad news. Antioxidants are useful for the development of some age-related diseases, but again, it depends on the specific antioxidant. Again, from the Harvard School of Public Health article, quote, This is the one bright spot for antioxidant vitamins. A six-year trial, the Age-Related Eye Disease Study, or AREDS, found that a combination of vitamin C vitamin E, beta-carotene, and zinc offered some protection against the development of advanced age-related macular degeneration, but not cataract, in people who were at high risk of the disease. Lutein, a natural occurring carotenoid found in green, leafy vegetables such as spinach and kale, may also protect vision. However, relatively short trials of lutein supplementation for age-related macular degeneration have yielded conflicting findings. A new trial of the AREDS supplement regimen plus lutein, zeaxanthin, and fish oil is underway. This trial could yield more definitive information about antioxidants and macular degeneration. End quote. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, so antioxidants are kind of a bust. But what about some other famous magical foods? One of my favorites, due to its similarity to the name of my family's number one fake food cure proponent, Nona, is the noni berry. The noni berry, spelled N-O-N-I, is the fruit of the Marinda citrifolia, or tropical evergreen tree, found in the Polynesian islands. Noni berries came to my attention when my nona asked us to buy them for her from the internet, a thing she has never used but which she knows is available for her to buy all kinds of weird crap on. I can only assume that a TV doctor told her to buy this stuff. Noni juice is thought to help you lose weight, cure your headaches, act as an antidepressant, boost your immune system, help with high blood pressure, and cure cancers, of course. And, 
Like all magical fruits, it is thought to boost memory, help with bad cholesterol, and act as an antibacterial, antifungal, antitoxin, and antiviral cure. The following is from healthyeating.sfgate.com. Quote, Noni contains about 160 natural plant compounds called phytochemicals. These include chemicals called glycosides, organic acids, terpenes, and alkaloids. Some of these compounds may inhibit growth of bacteria, including those that cause tuberculosis and salmonella infections. Noni components may also have anti-cancer properties and might boost the immune system, helping suppress the growth of cancer. A study published in Cancer Research found that two compounds from noni fruit suppressed growth of cultured cancer cells in the laboratory. Another study in phytotherapy research concluded that the anti-tumor activity of noni juice in lab animals was due to improved performance of the animal's immune systems. These are promising results that need confirmation in studies on human subjects. End quote. So let's unpack this one here. First off, phytochemicals are any chemical made specifically in a plant. So like, nicotine is a phytochemical. The ones that they talk about are pretty much present in most plants we use as well. Alkaloids are in fact looked at for their medicinal uses, but again, they're not some magical super drug or something that we don't commonly use now. Some alkaloids you may have heard of, in which those taking noni berries would likely look down on, include caffeine, morphine, codeine, and nicotine again. So you know, just because it comes from a plant doesn't mean that it is necessarily good for you all of the time. So let's look for these articles in the scientific literature. So they mentioned one in Cancer Research, and Cancer Research is a good journal with a pretty high impact factor, which basically is a way to see how many people read and use that journal for their work. It has an impact factor of around 8.5, which is like a mid to low high journal. There are actually two articles in Cancer Research on Noni, one titled, quote, Miranda Citrifolia Noni Induces Apoptosis Via the TLR4 Pathway in Breast Cancer Cells, end quote, by Parker et al., and another titled, quote, Two novel glycosides from the fruits of Marina citrifolia inhibit AP1 transactive and cell transformation in the mouse epidermal JB6 cell line, end quote, by Lou et al. So like, all right, really complicated titles. I only have access to the second article, which was published in 2001. Basically, what they did was look at the effect of some alkaloids created in the noni plant on AP1 or AP1 activity in mouse epidermal cells. So, an epidermal cell is a skin cell. From the article, quote, Increased AP1 activity is associated with malignant transformation in cancer-promoting agents, such as UV radiation, growth factors, forbol ester, and transformation oncogenes, end quote. So they basically induced AP1 activity and saw what effect the alkaloids from the noni plant had on this compound's release. So what you can think of is AP1 is sort of like a program that the cell will uh, start to occur when a certain impetus is put in, right? So something happens to the cell, AP1 activity starts to occur, and then it releases certain alkaloids. And so that's what they did. They induced AP1 to start going, and then they saw alkaloids being released, and they saw what effect that had on cancer growth inside of these specific types of cells. And what they found was that the alkaloids did show a decrease in the transformation of these particular sorts of mouse epidermal cells. But that does not indicate pure cancer deactivation or cure, 
or some way to treat cancers in humans, or some of the other crazy stuff Noni Juice is thought to help with. It simply shows that this one particular mechanism, which may be implicated in causing this particular kind of cancer, can be disrupted or stopped by the use of a compound found in noni berries. So how about this second paper? It's published in Phytotherapy Research, which is again a pretty alright journal. This one has an impact factor of around 2.6, which places it in the middle range for pharmacological, plant-based journals. As far as I can tell, this journal has had 13 papers published in their, like, history on the fruit of the tropical evergreen, which is so lovingly sold online as noni berries. Interestingly, there is a review paper out there on this magical fruit as well. The abstract of said review is as follows, quote, This review investigated the relationship of noni juice, or its extract, so fruit, leaves, or root, to anti-cancer and or immunostimulant properties. A Medline search was conducted using the key search words Morinda citrifolia and Morinda citrifolia and cancer from 1964 to October of 2011, along with cross-referencing. Botanical and chemical indexes were not included. A total of 304 and 29, so 10% of articles respectively, were found under these key terms. Of the 19 studies actually related to cancer, seven publications were in vitro cancer studies, nine were in vivo animal cancer studies, and three were in vivo human cancer studies. Among the in vitro studies, a concentrated component in noni juice and not pure noni juice may 1. stimulate the immune system to possibly assist the body fight the cancer, and 2. kill a small percentage between 0 and 36%, of cancer cells depending on the type. The nine animal studies suggest that a concentrated component in noni juice may stimulate the immune system, but only slightly increase the number, about one-third, so from 25 to 45%, of surviving mice. Other than two case studies, only two human clinical studies existed. The first consisted of testing freeze-dried noni fruit, which reduced pain perception, but did not reverse advanced cancer. The second was on smokers ingesting an unknown concentration of noni juice who experienced decreased aromatic DNA adducts and decreased levels of plasma superoxide anion radicals and lipid hydroperoxide. Factors considered in the future are clearly defining the substance being tested and whether or not the juice is pasteurized. Some reports of hepatoxicity exist, although there are confounding factors in most of the case reports. More importantly, Noni juice is high in potassium and needs to be monitored by patients with kidney, liver, or heart problems. In conclusion, a few in vitro and in vivo animal studies suggest a possible unidentified substance in unpasteurized noni juice that may have a small degree of anti-cancer activity. The isolation of the active component warrants further research. End quote. So let's actually unpack that a little bit because that was pretty dense. So basically, what this researcher did was they looked inside of the literature, so they did a Medline search, which is looking in the medical research for keywords that relate to the noni juice. So the scientific name of the berry, which is Mirinda citrifolia, and also that plus cancer. And so what they found were 19 studies that actually related to cancer, seven which were done kind of in vitro, which means inside of a cell plate, nine which were in vivo, which means that they were actually done inside of the body of an animal model, and three that were actually done within human cancers, 
So three that were actually done in the body of humans with cancer. So what they found was that in the cell lines, there was some concentrated component of noni juice that seemed to actually cause the immune system to assist the body fighting cancer. And there was a small amount that could kill up to 36% of cancer cells, but it depended on the type of cancer. So this is not like an end all, like it kills all cancer 36% of the time. It might only kill one type of cancer that's very rare or something. The animal study showed that something in noni juice did seem to stimulate the immune system, but it only slightly increased the number of surviving mice. So that means that like it may have helped their immune system, but not enough to actually have them overtake the cancer or survive the cancer that they got. And then in humans, they showed that some noni juice could reduce pain perception, but not change the course of their cancer. So like, Pain perception could just be the placebo effect, right? The placebo effect being that you take something and your mind will think, well, I'm taking medicine, so I must be getting better. So you'll actually feel better. The second big human test was on smokers. And so what they found was that it actually did decrease the amount of radicals that they seemed to form. But again, it didn't really change their cancer. And one of the big things that they say here is that the noni juice that they gave them was not like. Like the thing in the noni juice that actually changed the cancer or actually caused the pain loss or whatever was never identified in these papers. They just gave them pure noni juice. Now that's a problem, right? Because maybe noni juice, something in noni juice, some alkaloid or whatever could help cure cancer. But without knowing what it is that actually does that, you may be dosing people with noni juice and you're just giving them mostly garbage, right? You're giving them mostly just normal juice with a very small amount of stuff that maybe could be very useful to fighting cancer. And that's why the conclusions of this review paper are so important. Again, she says, in conclusion, a few in vitro and in vivo animal studies suggest a possible unidentified substance in unpasteurized noni juice that may have a small degree of anti-cancer activity. The isolation of the active component warrants further research. And I'd agree with that. It totally does warrant further research. Now, one particular researcher piqued my interest here, that being Dr. Amy C. Brown, who is a professor in the Department of Medicine, and particularly in the Department of Complementary and Alternative Medicine at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, John A. Byrne School of Medicine. This school is fully accredited by the American Medical Association, and it's a pretty damn good medical school. So it's very interesting to me that they have a complementary or alternative medicine program. It's not often you get some serious information on parascientific or weird topics. So this is pretty surprising and frankly, very exciting. Um, And she was the one that actually wrote that review paper that we quoted from earlier. If anyone from that program listens to this show, hit me up seriously, because I just find it completely fascinating. Anyways, she is the writer of the review paper with the above abstract and has a number of highly cited papers on alternative medicines. I think it's important to note her carefulness in defining terms. Although it appears that something in noni juice may potentially have, as she states, a small degree of anti-cancer activity, she is careful to say that it may not be the whole noni juice or something like that. Instead, it may be a single component in the noni juice. And I've got to say that I think that this study and these reviews and things are good studies on the claims of something. So it's pretty heartening. I, I'm... 
I'm very impressed. I think it was really good. So we've only brushed the surface when it comes to magical fruits in this episode, but I think it's a really interesting topic. And so if you would like to hear more about it in the future, let me know. I find this one particularly interesting because of my relative closeness to the topic. During my PhD, I had the privilege to get a look into the world of plant pharmaceuticals through seeing the work of a fellow student and friend, Sydney Shaw. Her project was on trying to find a way to help a certain tropical rose produce more of two very useful anti-cancer drugs, specifically vincristine and vinblastine, which are produced naturally in the plant. So this is the same sort of pathway or thing that people imagine noni juice could be used for someday. These things are alkaloids that are produced by this plant naturally. But the drug itself is produced in ratios of something like one gram of useful drug to every 500 kilograms of plant leaves. So that's a comically inefficient natural process. And so to get this really useful cancer drug, researchers like Sydney performed work on trying to make the plant produce more of this drug per gram of leaves. This usually involves metabolic and genetic engineering of the plants themselves. So in the case of Sydney's work, they found that the plant produced the drug when it was forced to defend itself from predators trying to eat the leaves. They therefore used this metabolic pathway to find things to tune in the genetics of the plant itself. So in her case, they used a method to implant new DNA into the plant to tell it to produce more or less of this drug given a certain impulse. Honestly, it's way over my head. And I hope I'm not sounding too stupid for Sydney and other genetic engineers at home. But the part of this story that I find the most interesting is the fact that it sort of kills the whole natural and pure idea in the first place, right? Like, people like the idea of using drugs from plants, but they don't necessarily like the idea of genetically engineering this plant to make more of this natural drug. At the same time, if we as a society spent the time basically using natural genetic engineering or in other words, breeding of these plants, in some way to up the production of this drug, there would be absolutely no problem, although it's pretty much the exact same thing in terms of chemistry. The only difference is it takes a few hundred less years to genetically introduce these beneficial properties to this plant than it would be to wait for a random genetic mutation to allow us to breed for increased vincristine or vinblastine production. I mean, all plants we consider natural today have been genetically engineered through selective breeding, right? Like, corn doesn't grow so large naturally. Strawberries are actually really small and tart. Bananas are naturally weird-looking and small. And carrots are actually the bitter and gross roots of a weed you might find growing in your grandma's garden. It all goes back to this magical way of thinking. If we find something in the natural world a certain way, we rationalize that this must be the way it's supposed to be, even if it hasn't been that way for, like, 99.99% of the lifetime of that plant on the planet Earth, let alone the species of that plant. So what is natural, really, when we think of things in those terms? That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again for listening to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell. My logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen. This week's music comes from a band called Constant Companion from Staten Island, New York. You can find their music on Spotify, iTunes, Bandcamp, and anywhere else where you usually would download digital music. This song is called Downtown in Brooklyn. I was 
I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) (laughs) Right.